Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I have a great conversation with my boss, one of the co-founders of Etruscan Press and a professor at Youngstown State University and Wilkes University. This week, it is my pleasure to get to speak with Dr. Phil Brady. This is episode 81 of Untenured Tracks. I'll tell you, the, you know, I just uh, uh, published my uh, selected poems and selected poems and poetics called The Elsewhere. So that was that was a chance to look backwards at previous books, both in poetry and prose. And I think a lot of uh, selected poems uh, off, try to offer a record. Um, you know, this is OK. Here's the best out of this book. Here's the best out of this book. And, you know, kind of chronological record. And I was after something a little different uh, for two reasons. Um, I was after at least the attempt to look at my work and say, okay, what are the major themes and how do they resonate? And I'm not going to worry 100% about chronology. So I'm going to shape this instead of making it a record, but actually trying to make it a new book, including new poems. Um, And the second reason, you know, one is that I wanted to, attempt to identify and and to feature um, the the major themes of my work over over the course of the last you know 35 years um, and the other reason is that I go back and forth between writing uh, poems and prose and so I have three books of uh, two books of essays and a memoir in prose uh, and even though they came out obviously, chronologically, you know, one book of essays and then one book of poems. The fact is that they were composed, generally speaking, in tandem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wanted to somehow feature that. So kind of break that wall down between line and sentence. And it's, you know, Henry James will tell you, well, a novel has to be an uninterrupted dream. So the last thing you want to do is, is, is to include other uh, material that would wake you out of the dream. And, and I guess you could say that about poetry, but I would say instead, I would say that, that poetry is never fully immersive. What I mean by that is when you're sitting and reading a poem, you don't fade off into that complete world of dream the way you do with a novel. You know, you think of an, if you've finished a good novel, you, you always feel like, wow, that place exists somewhere in my imagination, you know, uh, Whereas with a poem, I feel that the, the, um, the prosodic elements, the fact of the line, the fact that you're really reading a musical score mm-hmm. and you're having to translate that in your head to sound always makes you aware of the medium itself. And so by juxtaposing poems and prose, I think it really accentuates one's sense that the medium is, I don't, I don't want to say the medium is the message, you know, whatever, but the medium is, 
is foremost. The medium is this. This is one means of apprehension, mm-hmm. and there are other and other means of entry. Certainly, with a poem, the means of entry are either oral or or visual. You're either going to read it or you're going to hear it, and you're always aware of the shadow of the other. So, if you're listening to a poem, for instance, uh, a lot of times people will say, "Oh man, you know, I." For a moment there, I was somewhere else, and now I'm out of this. I, I don't understand what's going on in this poem because I, I, I lost the thread. Yeah. That happens a lot. I mean, that's, that's not uncharacteristic at all. Uh, you don't expect to fully, uh, uh, to, to, to fully appreciate a poem upon a first hearing. Sometimes you can, but more often than not, you don't. So you say to yourself, that's okay. I'll read it later. And I'll read it with the shadow of this, or the echo of this voice in mind. So anyway, that project came through. It's called The Elsewhere. And then I started on this new project, which I think to some degree has bearing on what I was just saying. Uh, In 2000, well, I'm going to go back a little bit, Andy, and say in in, in about 2009 or 10, I guess it was, um, I started a sequel to uh, my first memoir, which is called To Prove My Blood. And it was set in a boys' camp at seventh grade, you know, that period when you're just transitioning, you know, from childhood into adolescence. Um, and it was at the same time, I was also uh, coming to terms with being an editor and Etruscan Press had started in 2001, but by 2010, we were receiving tons of great submissions. So I would be at my desk reading these really good poems and rejecting them, you know, these books, which is bad karma. But, you know, we, we only had certain spots and it's just that's, that's what an editor has to do. And then going to my other desk and trying to write this memoir and, and feeling somewhat futile because I'd just come from this rich word hoard to this other thing. Well, um, then in, in 2010, uh, I had uh, a, uh, a vision kind of, and I, I don't recommend this particular method of getting to your place because my method was I had coronary bypass surgery. And I think that, I think I overstepped the mark there in terms of becoming <laughs> a, a fully fleshed poet. I think I could have maybe found another vehicle Took, took well, yeah, for a little too literally. Medical, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, take my heart out, please. Um, but what happened was that uh, I um, I saw things differently afterwards. You know, I looked at this memoir, hundreds of pages, and it didn't seem very important what had happened thirty-five years ago at some boy's camp. Um, and I started to to instead of just abandoning it, I trans, I started to transmute or translate it into blank verse. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I'm saying all of this is because what I found about poetry is that I really enjoy doing three things at the same time. One is writing lines, just making lines through form, you know? Uh, And the second was telling a story. Uh, and with poetry, the story could move at rapid speed or slow speed. There, because there's a space between each line, unlike sentences, which are linked, in a poem, you can move from one thing to another. There's always a little emptiness in between the lines. 
uh, and so it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to go, and then, you know. <laughs> uh, and the third was research. The third was just exposition, you know, tell, because I was, I was involved with, uh, I was studying Homer. I mean, the trigger for this um, uh, book, the trigger for the, this uh, project, which wound up coming out as a verse memoir called To Banquet with the Ethiopians, a memoir of life before the alphabet. The trigger was this boy, the seventh grade boy, brings to camp a prose translation of the Iliad by W.H.D. Rouse. And he doesn't, he's not able to read it because only later does the adult realize the reason he can't read it, it's a bad translation. <laughs> it's prose. It shouldn't be. It needs to be poetry. I mean, if, I, if, yeah. if he had only had the Fagels, yeah. if he had only had the Fitzgeralds, uh, you know, he would have been all right, maybe. But as it was, you were just inundated with these very unfamiliar, you know, words in sentence after sentence after sentence. And the boy felt inadequate. And he, but he also had a tinge, a sense that if he could just read this, he would discover what it's like in the, in the adult world, the men's world, which he was experiencing through the auspices of these cruel and um, heartless teenagers you know, who were enacting their own version of the Trojan War. <laughs> anyway, I say all this uh, because I, what, what I stopped doing at that point was writing lyric poems of, 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 a, of a certain brevity. My poems are never brief. I think you can tell that from the way I talk. Um, <laughs> But um, they, uh, they were, you know, they ended. They would be, you know, 50, 100, 200 lines, and that would be the end of it. And this project made me realize that the person that I was meant to be as a poet uh, was a person who works in sequences longer. So I could do those three mm -hmm. things. I could work in lines, work in sentences, and work in uh, research. Well, so you ask, you asked some time ago what I'm working on now. And what I'm working on now is a culmination, in a sense, of that sense of how form moves something forward. I'm working on a sequence of poems that each one, they're all seven-syllable lines. And they're heavily enjammed, sometimes radically enjammed, meaning, you know, they're going all over the place. And they're in dialogue with other books, largely from the books that I'm publishing at Etruscan. So it started with, a, with a, my inability, again, you know, you hit a wall and that's when things get started. Yeah. You yeah. know, you hit a wall and then, oh, it's where the wall, it's where something bounces off the wall that gets, that makes something interesting. Yeah. I was charged to write an introduction to a book called Generations, which is three uh, poets, William Hayen, H.L. Hicks, Dante Stefano. Uh, and I was having trouble writing it largely because I've written a lot about Bill Hay and, and, and H.L. Hicks already. And I think, I, you know, I, I think I've already said everything I, I had to say about those people. So I'm just sitting there trying to write this introduction. And almost as a doodling project, I just started to cut it into seven syllable lines. And it came to me that the whole point, not only of this project, but the point of poetry itself is to move away from completion because sentences both individual sentences and when they're linked together in story need to be complete 
you know, you, you have to have a beginning, middle, and end. I'm sure, you know, when you're working screenplays, I suspect the same dynamics apply. You yes. better have a beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> but, of course, our life doesn't have that. Our, our beginnings are lost in childhood, mm-hmm. and our ends are sudden and, un, and unexpected. Yeah. So our, our lives do not correspond to this fanciful completion that is represented by sentences, which is, of course, why we love sentences, why we love novels, because it gives us what we can't have. Well, poetry, so, I, po- poetry, I think, gives us what we do have, which is the sense of fragmentation and incompletion. Yes. And so my whole sense of the seven-syllable line is everything over here is written, but this part of the page really counts too, the blank mm-hmm. page, the page that is the eighth syllable, which does not actually isn't actually uttered. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. And, and it'll, I hope, be a, you know, a long sequence of poems in dialogue with other poems and other books that I've had intimate um, knowledge of through my role as an editor. So I've got a, a few questions I want to ask you. But first, I want to say that uh, for folks listening to this, um, especially folks who uh, are either currently in uh, the Maslow Family Graduate Writing Program, or are considering it. Um, I got to say, it's Phil. It's really cool to hear that after, you know, a thirty-five year career, you're still having these epiphanies about your your form and, and structure and how to do it better. Well, the, the, you know, Andy, I think the first thirty years are the hardest. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe not something that people <laughs> want to hear necessarily, uh, but it's true. It's it's true. Um, I was at a, a screenwriting conference uh, a couple of months ago, and there was a guy, his name is Trayvon Free, and he told this story that just blew my mind. So he, he got his start as a, as a writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and he said for 10 years before that, he, he would watch every uh, late night show, and he would write 10 jokes for every host in their voice five nights a week wow. for 10 years. Wow. So by the time he finally got that interview at Comedy Central, he had this, this stack, right? Sure. Of material that he had written in John Stewart's voice. And I don't think that people really realize that that's necessary, right? Like that, like he said, you have to, everybody's focused on getting their foot in the door. You need to focus on your footwork or you're going to that on your face. And that was just one of those, one of those epiphanies, right? Where I was like, I've been so focused on trying to, you know, get something sold. I have no idea how to act when I get there. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. That's so great. trying to trying to focus on on actually being able to walk the walk, right? Um, so I think I want to go through these in, in the order that I thought of them. So going back to the elsewhere, what was it like looking back at at you know thirty five years of material trying to find themes because. I mean, speaking at least from an academic perspective, I look back at stuff that I wrote two years ago right. and say, what is this? What was I right. thinking? Like, what, right. how does this fit into anything that I'm doing now? So I have to imagine that, that 35 years of prose and poetry, you're like, where do I even start? Very much so. And of course, the, the, for me, the hilarious part of the hilarious part is I have no recollection of ever getting anything right. You know, I was like, who wrote this? That's really good. Jeez, I don't remember ever. I remember where I was. I could tell you where I was when it happened, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, it, and of course, to some degree, I can even remember the, the actions and, and uh, 
settings and stories that that uh, triggered, you know, that that, that uh, spurred the poems on and 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 the essays. Um, but there is a feeling of foreignness to them, and a feeling of reaching into this this person who was, you know, yourself as a younger person. Um, one of the things I found, and I think I'm exploring this now in do in doing this thing that I was telling you about, was that when I was younger, I my poems tend my, for my first book called Forged Correspondences. Um, the poems were first of all, largely set in Africa where I had been a Peace Corps volunteer in Zaire. So my, I, I think what I learned in that book was how to address the exotic. In other words, I was in Africa for several years long enough so that things which would seem exotic to my readers, my American readers, were normal to me. Mm -hmm. And, and, and to, if I were to highlight the exotic, I would be misrendering that experience. And of course, exotic, I don't know how exotification, whatever that word is, has been a huge problem and has political and cultural implications. As yeah. Chinua Achebe writes about um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, you know, you can't set a novel in somebody else's place and just eliminate those people's concerns and agency. Yeah. Um, so that, that book had that element of how do I get this through to appear? And it was, again, hitting that wall. It was through refraction. Mm -hmm. I wound up using the voices, especially the voice of a man named uh, Roger Casement. Um, and so looking back at that book, I'm, I'm so aware of what I was feeling at the time so what i was trying to do and but what i was not so aware of then and only was aware in retrospect is the fact that all not all the lines but they were highly enjammed meaning that the syntax and the lines did not match there's and i realized at that time i i it was like robert frost you know says the poem begins with a lump in the throat you know, I was trying to get out of my body. Mm -hmm. Poetry was a, a, a means, you know, James Wright has this wonderful line uh, where he says, uh, uh, and I knew that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. And I think that sense of wanting poetry somehow to emerge, I mean, to, to, to complete. And, and uh, that, I think, was prominent, even though I didn't know it, nor did I contextualize it that way. Um, because later, in later books, I, I find myself being far more formally conservative. And, and I realized that as an older man, I just want to keep things together. Mm -hmm. You know, I want the body to continue to exist. And I want to somehow represent that body on the page. And which is why this new project of enjambment is kind of like freaking me out because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm addressing this very thing that, uh, uh, that I, you know, had thought, I, I thought I saw a pattern in my work and now I'm having seen the pattern, I'm moving in a completely different direction from that pattern. Mm -hmm. So seeing your old poems, the, seeing the map that they make of your, of your mind and the events in your life 
uh, gives them a set, uh, you know, seeing them together gives them a new life. And just from a logistical, practical point of view, mm-hmm. like everybody's first book has a kitchen sink quality to it, unless you're really smart. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. In other words, I was already in my 30s. Mm-hmm. And I had written, like your friend who had written five jokes, you know, for every night, I had written a hell of a lot of poems. Yeah. And, and I'd be damned <laughs> you know, if they weren't <laughs> going to see the light. So that book, you know, probably included things which I wouldn't include today. And it was a real pleasure for me to be able to disassemble mm-hmm. these books, you know, especially the first one, but, you know, just the second one too. And, and to give them, uh, you know, a new light, uh, seen better because I was much more exclusionary. I, you know, I, 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 I had took, taken out the poems, which, which didn't, for me, didn't outlive their time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was exciting for me to see, okay, you know, how much of this book or where in this book or what is this book doing? Um, this book that, of course, you know, Obviously, not many people read, and so I felt completely, um, you know, uh, completely free to re-edit. And you know, it's, I didn't feel like somebody would be going, "Hey, wait a minute, this isn't the same as it was in Forge Correspondences," you know, <laughs> uh, you know. So I, I felt like it could be read; it would be read by anybody who did read the elsewhere as a new as a new book. That's funny. So you're not worried about the Phil Brady completionists out there. They're, right, exactly. Yeah, there's, there's some, some, some guy and you know, poor devil. <laughs> you know, um, and of course, the, I'll just say the last thing is the other major thing that happens in people's lives, and it obviously happened in my life, is that the people that you want to see your work die. All my teachers my parents, the people for whom I was, you know, these, the, the, they were the ones who, who uh, uh, I looked up to mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and that, and, you know, that leaves, that, that ends. So I'm curious, uh, you, had, you had said uh, this great, this great quote I wrote down, you're coming to terms with being an editor. And I'm, I'm curious about, uh, are you able to write on the same days that you're, that you're editing for Etruscan or does that have to be like completely separate boxes? Um, no, I, it's the thi- it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I say, on the one hand, yes, you are reading stuff that's uh, it, it has one quality. Everything I read has one quality that the work I'm working on doesn't have, which is mm-hmm. it's finished, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and and so good, bad, or indifferent, it's looking at me and and saying, "I am finished. I am mm-hmm. complete." Um, and so I and I, I say this to students too. I say, you know, look, being an editor is great, but you really have to protect, find some way to protect your work, because you are coming against stuff that has a huge iceberg underneath it, which is all the time that person spent to get this book into your hands mm-hmm. um, and your work, of course, you know, doesn't have that. So yeah, there's something going on that, that can be destructive. The positive side is that it saves you from doing a lot of 
things that you might have done otherwise. I, I tell people, I don't see, you know, if you, if you think of, of poetry, contemporary poetry being a river, I don't have perspective. I don't see the river from some vantage point. But I have my eyes closed and I have my finger in the river so I can tell the speed and temperature. In other words, what comes across my desk isn't the whole river. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is submitting to Etruscan, thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I'm seeing this uncontextualized, raw material. You know, you have no, you, generally speaking, every once in a while you'll know somebody, but for the most part, you have no idea who this person is. You have to make up your own mind. And what I wind up seeing and is I start to see patterns. So, you know, we talked about this in, in our publishing class, Andy. You know, that first, we do an exercise, of course, with the first hundred words. And, and that the practical reason for that is that by the time I've read the first poem or two, I've, you know, most of the time made up my mind about a whole book that I haven't mm-hmm. read. Mm-hmm. How can I do that? You say, that seems so unfair. It's because I just saw one just like it. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, these two people who are writing, they're writing in their own rooms. They don't see each other's work as it's coming out. Um, I see them. So I see these patterns and I can start to recognize them. So in my own work, I know not to replicate that. Oh, well, it seems like you, you have an advantage then. I feel like it's both a disadvantage because you have to confront the completeness, but it's an advantage because when you do, like for instance, when I finished or when I started working on to banquet with the Ethiopians, I knew there wasn't anything else like it that I'd seen, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm not saying that it's completely unlike everything, but -hmm. at least I knew that it had a kind of integrity that was different from those books that I was working on. So it's both, you know, as I say, it's a double-edged sword. And in terms of the actual day, yeah, I mean, my days are a mess. You know, so it's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any particular pattern. We, we haven't even talked about you. I also have, you know, teaching. So that's, you know, you've got to do some of that every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, every now and then to keep the lights Every on. now and then, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so let's, let's um, talk about that since you, you brought it up. What's it, what's it like? I mean, this is this is going to sound like maybe the one of the dumbest questions that I could I could ever possibly ask. But I'm I'm so interested <laughs> in how people. I mean, cause in in the course of doing this podcast, and I I hope in the course of doing these interviews for for Wilkes, um, I've gotten to talk to people who are doing things that are just radically different from what I what I do, right? Like outside of my criminology bubble. So I'm really genuinely curious, like not only like how do people get into their, into their areas of expertise um, or specialty, but like, what's it, what is it like to teach in those, in those areas when you have, I mean, because you're teaching undergraduates and grad students, right? Yes. So when you have, when you have that, that 19 year old first year student um, who may be apprehensive about poetry and then they get the Phil Brady experience with both barrels. That that poor kid, first of all. That's right, that's right. As as you said in the class, I use my pirate voice. (laughs) Quivering in their in their seats. But but honestly, what is it what is it like getting to teach poetry? Well, I think the first um principle in in poetry is do no harm. 
mm-hmm. um, because so much harm has been done. Uh, you know, and, and the harm has been inflicted because poetry has an outsized uh, place in high school curricula. So all these high school kids, okay, today we're reading Shakespeare. You know, tomorrow we'll be reading, you know, Dante or Robert, whatever. I'm sure they're not reading Dante. <laughs> but, um, but that's an emotional and intellectual burden on them that, that builds up in them a sense that poetry is foreign, distant, um, and, and un, un, unattainable. And I think the teacher, I think just the whole dynamics of our high school, the teachers feel that way a little bit too sometimes. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they, have to, they have to teach this, even though they know it's very hard to connect uh, to, most, to most students. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that we have taken the word poetry and we have assigned a meaning that excludes most poetic experience. Um, so, you know, poetry for me, I say, okay, what is the definition of poetry? Well, there's a million definitions, of course, mm-hmm. but the most important one for me is it's not a genre or it's mm-hmm. not only a genre. It's not okay. a group of canonical items, artifacts. It's yeah. an impulse, a human mm-hmm. impulse to render what's inside. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we know that it has to come outside and we know that therefore it has to have some refraction. It can't, if I could tell you exactly what I was thinking, I wouldn't be talking so long. And if I could tell you exactly, you know, if, like Milton's angels, you know, when Milton's angels had sex, all they had to do was like interpenetrate one another completely. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was their experience of unity. Well, we don't have that. We only have this mouth mm-hmm. and to get, and to somehow take all the stuff inside and to make it as big as it is inside, some refraction has to take place. That's the job of poetry. It's what I call an aesthetic experience of language. So language, not as communication, but language as beauty. Mm -hmm. So now if you apply that, suddenly the cannon explodes and, and people are invited to listen to their world. You know, as Finn McCool says, that the greatest music of all is the music of what happens. And um, once you do that, then you're uh, relieved from the burden of this canonical force of literary poetry. And keep in mind that throughout history, poetry has had at least two, you know, different um, kinds of iterations. One being the esoteric. In other words, things are, well, I'm communicating with, with some other being and I'm being very exclusionary because I don't want everybody to understand this because mm-hmm. the world can't be understood really in, at this level. And that's what we're calling literary poetry these days. Mm-hmm. You know, the modernists did this and they said, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're going to write this, um, a, this poetry that communes with reality but may not have any... Uh, impact on the world. You know, Auden says poetry makes nothing happen. But what he doesn't tell you is that's actually, poetry makes nothing happen. Yeah, it makes nothing, this thing nothing actually occur, like mm-hmm. mathematical zero. Um, anyway, the other way that most people receive poetry is through rock lyrics, 
prayers, jokes, mm-hmm. um, any kind of formalized language where form is brought to, is brought to bear. Mm-hmm. So as I say, teaching poetry, the first thing you do is, is just to get to realize you don't ask kids, do you like poetry? Because they'll say no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, it's more like you don't realize it, but you already like poetry. The only question is we're going to find out what kind of poetry you like. Like nobody asks you, do you like music? Do you like music? I would, you know, say no. No, I hate music. You know, nobody says that. You always say, what kind of music do you like? Mm-hmm. And so the, for the, that 19-year-old kid, you know, the first thing that you want to present to him or her is the idea that he's been living or she's been living with poetry their whole lives already. Um, from Rockabye Baby, you know, all the way through whatever subversive high school stories got told behind, underneath the, the, the stands in the football stadium, you know. Mm-hmm. Those, those are all part of this aesthetic experience of language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me of something that I think you wrote in Elsewhere um, that really struck me, um, where you, you talk about the difference between memorization and learning something by heart. And that, that for me was another one of those epiphanies where I, I just flashed back to um, my capstone presentation at this past residency where uh, I've obviously given lots of lectures in my life, right? So this wasn't anything new, but just like thinking about the run-up to that where I'm teaching new material in this short 15-minute window. And like the week before, I didn't have it, I didn't have it, I didn't have it, and then I got it. And mm-hmm. there was no need to rehearse because it wasn't, it wasn't up here. It was like I knew it by heart. And mm-hmm. I had that confidence of like, I know when I get in front of that class, uh, I'm going to feel that, that electricity for the first time in, in 15 months or, or whatever it was. Um, and I know this stuff by heart and whatever, whatever comes out, comes out, but I know it'll be, I know it'll be good. Um, so I'm really excited to, to go back and, and bring that, that wisdom to my students who are, who, as I'm sure you've seen uh, at, at Youngstown, uh, are, are socialized to memorize everything and then just forget it the next day. And, right. and I'm really hoping that this will, um, will show them really like the necessity of, of like, sure, there's some stuff that you, you need to memorize. And, and even though we tell them all of their classes are useful, <laughs> I've I've never really had to solve for X that much as an adult. <laughs> throw that out there. Uh, since we're thinking about high school, um, but you know, for the stuff that they care about, that they should they should learn it by heart, and right. and kind of put that that part of themselves into it, which I don't think that they're really allowed to do all that often. Especially since the, you know, the way that the orality is usually presented is just punishment, you know, <laughs> yes. l- you know, learn, learn the Gettysburg address and you better have it by tomorrow or, you know, it's that kind of a thing. It's, yeah. it's punitive. And not only punitive, but it, it goes against the American grain of wanting to be original. Yes. So, you know, you mean I gotta learn, but here, that's already been said. I'm not going to do that. That's not new. Um, but internalizing the works that have come before is an act mm-hmm. of creativity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's things change when they're in your body, mm-hmm. you know, words change. Yeah. There is that, that kind of metamorphosis that happens. Um, 
that can make it really powerful. I mean, that's why cover songs are so popular, right? right. <laughs> right. A, right. A, a band can have no uh, no ability to create anything new, but if they can they can cover some Bon Jovi songs in an interesting way. Sure, <laughs> right. You hear it for the first time. Yeah, as if for the first time with the echo of you know what you've heard before. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm I'm curious, and I think that that people who know you who might be listening to this uh, would be remiss if I didn't ask this, this question. So what, what inspired you or what brought you to poetry to begin with? Well, I think, to, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to say this at the time. Um, so this is all in retrospect. Um, but I think the two things that, uh, that developed or ignited my oral imagination, which is A-U-R-A-L, not, not oral, but you know, your listening imagination. One was the Latin mass, which uh, I was an altar boy. And this is back in the day where the mass was in Latin and you learned it and, and you didn't learn it by heart. You memorized it. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> well, speaking of, of being <laughs> memorized up for punishment's sake. <laughs> yes. And, um, but what, you know, again, I would never have been able to even um, uh, perceive this, much less articulate it at that time. But what, was, what I was experiencing was uh, a multisensory um, environment where, you know, sound and, and, the, and the great formal place of my church was large and, and beautiful. Uh, the smells, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the vestments, all of this with this foreign sound that you were hearing without any uh, understanding of what it meant. And so you were relieved of any, you know, explicatory uh, part. You know, you didn't have to, there's no exegesis here. You know, you just learn it. And the other was ancillary also, but I, you know, my parents were Irish and uh, growing up, I listened to um, the music of, of gen- basically the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makem. Mm-hmm. Now they're out of uh, fashion today. And well, they were never really in fashion. I didn't know who the Beatles were, to give you an idea. Um, you know, I think I may have heard of them, yeah. but I certainly didn't listen to anything of the Beatles. I, uh, I would um, get on my hands and knees in front of the cabinet hi-fi and rock back and forth to these albums and sing them again, you know, not understanding what was being said. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes they would sing songs in Irish and I would learn that too. <laughs> it wasn't that different from the English because to be honest, I, you know, I wasn't really following and, and, you know, the other thing you learn, too, for instance, just as an answer, you know, say, how did Homer do it? How did, the, how did those people, uh, you know, recite 16,000 lines? I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's a hell of a lot of learning. And, of course, they didn't. They did it the way comics do it today. They did it the way your friend did it. You know, he already, and the way you're talking about teaching, you, he, they learned it by heart through formula. Mm-hmm. And because imagine that there's no writing at all. Because these songs that I learned from the Clancy Brothers, I never saw them. Mm-hmm. I never saw them written down. So I, I you know, uh, and 
the way that we know that there are things called words is not through saying them, it's through seeing them. So generally speaking, in the oral tradition, people don't have words, they have utterances. So in the year of Philor in 1800, that's one utterance. I didn't know that it was in the year of our Lord, 1806. I didn't know that. I just, in the year of our Lord, you know, that, that was the sound. Mm-hmm. So I think those two things, I don't know whether they got me into poetry, but they awakened that oral imagination that eventually, years and years later, through, you know, reading, and I, I always, you know, of course, loved to read, and then became an English major, and so on and so forth. Um, they uh, were available to me. And then, you know, to, on a more practical level, I think I was writing, in my 20s, I was writing poems like ones that were, that I was reading. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I would call Way Canel, W.D. Snodgrass, James Wright. Um, and and for, uh, largely, they were poems that came from pastoral experience. But I grew up in Queens. And so my poems were really derivative. You know, they, they were, they didn't come out of my experience. They came out of my reading. Now, if I was a painter, that would be fine. There's a place for painters to imitate. You're supposed to do it. But in poetry, you're always supposed to be original. At least that's, you know, one of the foolish things I think that gets said about it. You know, why shouldn't poets imitate as long as they know they're imitating? I didn't know I was imitating. Yeah. And it was only my experience of going to Zaire, going to the Congo, and coming back and now not only having something that I wanted to share, but also the awareness that to do that, I would need to make some formal uh, inventions to make that happen so that it could be shared in something of the way that I experienced it rather than as, Hey, look at these pythons or wow. Aren't these, you know, look at these people. Aren't they, don't they dress funny? Um, That kind of a thing. Yeah. So that was a breakthrough for me. It gave me, my own voice. And that happened, you know, in my late twenties, early Mm thirties. So this is maybe a little bit off topic, but I got to ask, like, what was the Peace Corps like? What, what, why did you join up? Uh, I I love, first of all, it was transformative. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had taken like most people, high school French and, you know, forgot. I I came back two years later speaking French. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, I, I had one I just wonderful experience. My first experience of teaching, I taught at the University of Lubumbashi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had done it after my MA, and it was always on my mind. In fact, after my BA, mm-hmm. I had uh, gone to one of those conferences where you, you know, apply, and, and they'd ask you questions like, okay, uh, do you have any farm experience? Uh, no. Um, do you have any, uh, you know, t- uh, uh, do you know anything about mechanics? Uh, no. Um, you know, I mean, basically, you walk away saying, I guess I really don't know anything. And they, they said, you know, very nice. But then I went for my MA. And at that point, they, you know, they could, I could connect better as a couple years older. And I applied again, and, uh, and got in. And, and as I say, was, was, was uh, sent to the University of Lubumbashi. Wonderful experience. I, I still tell, I'm, I'm still in touch with the RPCV community here in Ohio. And every once in a while, it hasn't happened for a few years, but every once in a while, a representative will come down and, and I will show them around and maybe introduce them to students because mm-hmm. it was such an incredible experience for me. And interestingly enough, too, Andy, uh, at that time, 
there were several people who were retired. We had, we had a person there who was in their 60s, another person, two people in their 60s, who had done the Peace Corps after. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's still, that's still a kind of fantasy that I harbor. It's never going to happen, I'm afraid. But you know, I still think about, wow, it'd be great to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm pulling for you that you get that, that opportunity. Um, would... So I would, I would be remiss if I did not turn this uh, towards Wilkes. Um, so you, you were one of the founding members, correct, of the, yes. the Maslow Family Graduate Program. Um, what has is, what is this program meant to you um, over the years? Um, well, I, this, this program has, has been incredibly enriching. And not just for the students, but for the faculty um, for on, on several levels. First of all, um, the fact of its diverse genre and livelihood uh, occupations. I mean, of course, you know, as you know, Andy, you know, the academic world can, can get a little stultifying. You know, we're all, you know, do, as my mother used to say, the PhD piled high and deep. Yes. Um, and uh, the Wilkes faculty were chosen not necessarily for academic credentials as they were for their writing. Mm-hmm. And so you had people, I met people um, who had completely, you know, different experiences of their, of the profession of writing. Just being, you know, I, you know, I think of, 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 you know, some of the folks like John Bowers mm-hmm. and Ken, Ken Vose, you know, uh, uh, you know, people who are still, uh, on the faculty, like your mentor, Ross Clavin. Um, you know, I, I think that the program and Bonnie Culver, of course, as the heart and soul of that, were extremely wise in choosing faculty and inviting students from non-traditional backgrounds. Yeah. So what an opportunity for somebody like me, you know, I'm a, I'm an academic mouse and, um, it was just fantastic in that regard. Uh, the other thing that, you know, I mean, Bonnie invited Etruscan Press to be housed at Wilkes. Mm-hmm. And this was back when, you know, we started in 2001 and then the program started in 2005. So in 2006, we signed our first contract and we signed a subsequent many contracts, three-year contracts, and we just signed a new one, uh, an agreement with Wilkes which gives the program direct experience of a working press. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you walk into the creative writing office and here's Etruscan and you see this is happening right here, right in front of your eyes. So you get a visual and real reminder of what is, what's happening here. We're, we're, we're writing, but we're writing for the purpose of sharing, making something public. And, and that's really, I think, a, a very valuable for the students. For us, it's really valuable because, you know, big secret here, poetry doesn't make money. And um, so, therefore, you know, like most nonprofits, uh, our revenue does not come solely from book sales or even primarily from book sales, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, we need donations, grants, and in-kind um, contributions and Wilkes makes all three of those. They, you know, they, they provide money They They give us opportunities for donations, but they also uh, provide that in kind uh, uh, 
contribution of housing us. So it's that has been such a boon. And of course, it ties me with many other faculty, both my uh, co-editor and co-founder of the press, Robert Mooney. Um, you know, he does the fiction and I do the poetry. But also we've published quite a few faculty members. I mean, we've published Sarah, book by Sarah Pritchard, Jeff Tallarico, Kevin Oderman, Lori Kennedy, you know, so we've, we have been, we've had these relationships have resulted in, in some wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful new relationships, advisory board members, H.L. Hicks and Tim Siebels, both of whom uh, have had national book award, have been national book award finalists. Bill Hayen has been to Wilkes many times. He's a national book award finalist, all with Etruscan. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I'm deeply grateful to the program. I'm excited for the students. Um, the fact that it's got such an innovative way of approaching writing. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say is some of this came because of Norman Mailer mm -hmm. and Mailer's contribution. It's like, you ever see that movie Facebook about the Zuckerman, uh, you know, the Facebook movie where the social media. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Film. You know, the, the, uh, apparently there were two guys in the beginning and one guy, his only contribution was, he said, uh, uh, listen, get rid of the, it should just be Facebook, not the Facebook. And that was it. You know, he's a millionaire. Well, Norman Mailer's contribution to the program, as far as I saw, I'm sure he did many other things, but, but the one thing that he did, which resonates with me is he said, don't make admittance conditional on academic background make it conditional only on the quality of the writing yeah and so they somehow managed to convince the pennsylvania board of education to allow people to do this program without necessarily having completed a ba mm -hmm. resulting in you know folks like uh, marlon james winning the booker uh, you know the man booker prize um jason uh, carney whom i mentioned earlier um, you know, his, his novel, um, his novel, uh, uh, I'm sorry, his memoir, Star of the Vulture came out from Kaylee Jones books, which is another enterprise that Wilkes supports. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that just makes the, the program even more diverse and, yeah. uh, non-traditional. Yeah. Inviting. Yeah. I was, so at this past residency, in my in my exhaustion, I was uh, raving about the program. Any chance that I got to folks that were in cohorts behind me, um, and I I really want to make sure that people understand like what a unicorn <laughs> this program is. Right. Um, not or, or I'm sorry, uh, admitting students without having a bachelor's degree is unheard of. Yes, um, and allowing people to skip that undergraduate stage to go right into graduate work. Um, it's revolutionary um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's shocking that other schools haven't, haven't caught on yet um, that we're <laughs> we are, uh Wilkes is able to almost steal like incredibly talented folks um, who may have been shut out by an academic system that is usually very exclusionary. Yes. Right. Um, and I, I think the same thing goes for like recruitment of faculty too, you know, um, I'm sure Bonnie had to work really hard <laughs> to make that happen. Right. Um, but I, I guess it's one of those situations where she worked so hard and, and everybody worked so hard that it looks easy. 
Well, that's and isn't that playing right back into what we talked about at the beginning, which is you know uh, that uh, uh, your friend who who practiced ten years, you know, to, to just to get the foot in the door. You know, as, as Yates says, you know, a line will take us hours, maybe, but if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching have been naught. And and that's true, not just for poetry, not just for literature, but I think for all human undertaking. It has to look easy, but it ain't. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, like another good message for students. Yeah. Listening to this. I mean, regardless of what field you're in, even, whether it's creative writing or anything, anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I tell my students all the time that they, I think, are unwittingly socialized to think that research is easy because they only ever see the end result. That's right. right? Or that making movies is easy because they only see it when it's done and right. walk out during the credits when there's, you know, 8,000 <laughs> people who are, who are doing all of the CGI and all of, all of the second and third units flying all over the world yes. and, and all of yes. that stuff that, that is a massively important part of, especially right. in, in big budget films. Um, it looks easy, right? right? LeBron James, Bugs Bunny, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to see that one, actually. <laughs> I'm glad that right. you got that one. Right. I'm yeah. glad that you got it. I know that you're a big LeBron James fan. I know, and I was going to say, you know, Andy, you're you're not you're not going to skip over my my basketball career, are you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that. We can no. talk about it. Um, it. It gets better every year. <laughs> you're, you're still you're still holding out for that that eligibility, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing about the program today, I mean, and 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 I th- I think that because the program has a history of innovation, that innovation becomes uh, one of the unspoken uh, uh, means of 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 moving forward. I mean, it, it, nobody says, "Well, we can't do that," uh, because we've never done it. Um, so, for instance, that you know, they, they say, uh, have a new spoken word track. Well, I can pretty much guarantee that that's that's going to be unique. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, most most programs, my goodness, most programs would would uh, you know hesitate even to have YA or or genre fiction. We've had that for so long, and so having innovated in the past opens doors mm-hmm. now. And so, you know, Bonnie, of course was just such a synthetic thinker mm-hmm. and uh, you know, able to put different things together in new shapes. And so that's the inheritance that David Hicks has. Mm-hmm. And he clearly is interested in, in becoming more diverse as a faculty and student mm-hmm. body, uh, rep- more representative and inclusionary. Uh, and, he's, and he's got the mandate to do that. You know, in fact, I think it would be, surprising if uh you know if somebody came in and said well we're not going to change anything because it's all working so well you know that, that that's mm-hmm. not that's not the way this program was was ever made mm-hmm. um and so yeah i look forward i look forward to great things to come uh you know i i'm teaching uh, uh the foundation's poetry course this time i've never done that before and um you know i mean so I, as much as the program is almost 20 years old mm-hmm. um 
it, it's, it refreshes constantly. Um, and, and I think more so because it's so many students coming from non-traditional backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I met, when I first met with Bonnie, um, when I was applying and kind of poking the program with the stick <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and Bonnie telling me that, um, unlike other creative writing programs, we spend a considerable amount of time preparing students for the business part of it. Right. And just, and being so refreshed because my concern was that, you know, I, I have a variety of different interests. Some of them may be more serious than others. Um, and I was, I was very worried about coming into a program that was going to have, that was going to be kind of stuffy. Right. Wilkes is not stuffy. Right. <laughs> not, no, the, um, I, I basically, I'm, a, I'm able, I'm, I'm invited and permitted to say things which wouldn't normally uh, be part of the curriculum. Like for instance, I'll tell students, I say, look, we're, we're here and the university provides us this meeting point, but don't write anything just to satisfy the course requirements. You know, mm -hmm. everything that you write has to have this other element in mind. You know, it, it, the course requirements are a means. You, you're not supposed to just demonstrate, okay, I, I have mastered this material. You know, I have a master's degree. That's very nice. Um, but the, you know, the goal is, as you, as you say, it's goal is oftentimes in, mo in most programs, I would say the goal is, is, is not even mentioned. You know, the goal of saying, I want to, I want to make a mark mm -hmm. professionally in my field while at the same time, somehow, you know, putting food in my mouth and, um, mm -hmm. You know, this program comes out and actually says, okay, how are we going to put food in your mouth? Yeah. You know, while you're writing the great American novel. Yeah. And, and things like that. So yeah, that, that, that part of it, I'm glad that you experienced it that way because that's basically, you know, the, 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 the framework of the courses never loses its permeability. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always being pushed to say, okay, what are you writing this for ultimately? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm in a, a unique position too, because I mean, I was, this was going to be the program for me anyway, um, just because I'm a Wilkes professor already. Um, but it, it definitely shaped my attitude coming into it. Um, but even, even being in, in that first, that first residency, you know, my, my plan coming in, and I remember talking, asking Bonnie, like, am I going to be, am I going to be the oldest person in class? <laughs> <laughs> because and like and also having this thought of like I've done grad school before, do I really want to do this again? As do I really have it in me to do this again? And coming in that first week with the attitude of like, okay, well, I've I've already done grad school. I'm here because I'm an employee, not on any talent I have. Um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna be a wallflower for two and a half years and just let the real grad students kind of have their thing. And after that first week, that was gone. Like <laughs> all any facade of, and I remember sitting with with Taylor Plates, who I, I hope to, to be able to sit down with for a future one of these interviews, and and telling him that, and saying like I belong here, and and that's very clear to me now, and I should have done this twenty years ago, <laughs> um, but say la vie, right? And Taylor saying like yeah, you absolutely do belong here, and that was like one of the best experiences I've ever had, honestly. Um, right. In, in higher ed 
and which can be so ruthless and, right. and, and unforgiving. So, um, yeah, that, that's that, that philosophy that, that, um, Bonnie and now David have implemented and continue to implement, I think is, is really, really special. Yeah, it is so much so that, you know, I mean, uh, I, I find it, uh, uh, very, uh, uh, heartwarming that, um, when they, you know, now that we had the pandemic and we had two residencies on zoom and we see what can be accomplished on zoom. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's to be able to bring all this stuff in and record it and show it and all of this. And so there's been talk about whether or not maybe the January residency, for instance, might be online. And, and one would think that people would be saying, Oh boy, that's great. I don't have to go to Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania in the middle of January. But in fact, I'm hearing a lot of people say, wait a minute, I, I don't get to go to Wilkesbury in the middle of January. You know? And in fact, I, I met with David shortly after residency um, to pitch him this project. And I was like, by the way, we're coming in January, right? And he says, oh yeah, I have no idea how that rumor got started. He's, he's really just fit in and, uh, but at the same time provided leadership and inspiration. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I got nothing but good things to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've taken up a lot of your time, so okay. always uh, a pleasure, Andy. I will, always I will a pleasure. Say thank you, thank you for taking time to um, come on and talk with me and talk about Wilkes. Uh, I have no idea when this is going to be out. For more on tenure tracks, please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us.